If you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter number 12, would you shout amen? Amen. amen. I think I heard you at Merriman Avenue too. Amen. Uh, you saw on the video a moment ago where today we are talking about the origin of Israel. Um, let me tell you a couple of things about Israel that I think are fascinating facts. When, when you compare the nation of Israel, really in any global sense to other countries across uh, the, the world, uh, Israel is a tiny speck of a nation. And I mean that. It is a, it is a minuscule little speck of a country. In terms of size, Israel compares to the city of New Jersey, I mean to the state of New Jersey. Can you imagine? To New Jersey. And it has a population of less than 9 million people. So to give you a little bit of perspective, compared to the United States, um, Israel is one thirtieth of the size of our country. There are, there are 30 times as many people in America as there are in uh, Israel. In terms of square mileage, just uh, sheer land mass, you could take the little country of Israel and you could put it in the continental United States 450 times. Is that incredible? America is 450 times larger than the state of Israel. It is this, it is this tiny little country. And so it begs the question, uh, why would such a tiny little nation figure so prominently into world affairs? And it does, doesn't it? Israel is always, always in the news. You can hardly go a day, a 24-hour news cycle, without hearing some tidbit of news of what's happening politically uh, or uh, militarily uh, in the nation and surrounding the nation of Israel. This was true this, just this past week. Big announcement from our White House just this past week. Did you hear it? Other than the impeachment stuff, that's happening. But there are other things going on in the world, right? Um, this past Tuesday, uh, our president, President Trump, and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu held a press conference at the White House. Uh, and the press conference uh, was for this purpose to announce the details of the Trump administration's Middle East peace plan. I put those two things together, Middle East and peace, and that's a paradox sometimes, right? The, those things don't often uh, go together, although for 70 years since, uh, since the rebirth of the nation of Israel, presidents, I think it's fair to say every U.S. president, has tried to negotiate some form of a peace agreement. It's happened over and over again, mostly uh, with no success, some with limited uh, success. And, and so this week, President Trump has uh, waded into that effort and, and is taking his uh, swing at that, uh, at that uh, plate as well. Um, essentially, here's what the president said. that The, the, the plan that they've put together is that they, there will be a two-state two solution. Uh, that there will be a, a, an Israeli state and a Palestinian state side by side. And that the Palestinian state will occupy the West Bank 
uh, that they'll give some extra territory to them that they don't currently uh, uh, lay claim to, uh, and that they will be in Gaza, um, that there will be a tunnel connecting the West Bank and Gaza, and that they will have their capital somewhere in East Jerusalem. So a lot of details were given. Of course, a lot of details were left out. Here's what happened, and this is what I found so interesting, is that when this announcement came, it was as if the entire world leaned in. I mean, all around the world, people leaned in to listen to the plan and then to respond to it, mostly with scoffing, some with praise, um, but trying to determine, will this finally be the plan that will bring about peace? The question is, why does it matter so much to the entire world? I know it matters to the Israelis and the Palestinians, but why does it matter to the Europeans? And why does it matter to the Americans? Why does it matter uh, to, to countries around the world? Why does Israel matter so much for so many people? There's another question that you ought to ask when you think about Israel, and it is that why are so many Christians so interested in Israel and the Jewish people? particularly evangelical Christians, but, but to be sure, Christians of, of every stripe are very interested in Israel and the Jewish people. Why? Let me show you something. Uh, take your Bible, both campuses, hold your Bible up. Would you do that? Hold, look, look around. Look at, look at these Bibles being held up. It's a beautiful thing, by the way. Amen. I love that. All right. Do you know that well over half of the Bibles that you just held up is completely Jewish in character and in content. And I don't just simply mean to say that it that it's, has a Jewish flavor. It is completely Jewish. And while Christianity sprung out of Judaism, there is much in the Bible that while the principles and truths apply to Christianity, they're not Christian per se. They're Jewish. I mean, so much of our Bible is, is about the history of the Jewish nation. It records the genealogies of Jewish families. It records the preaching of Jewish prophets. It records the beauty of Jewish poetry. It's Jewish through and through. Every single one of the human authors of the Bible were Jews. Now, some people would argue Luke maybe wasn't. But, but essentially, if not all, every single one of these authors were Jewish. Our Savior, Jesus, was born in Israel. He was a Jew. He never left, literally never left the country of Israel in his entire life. He died and rose from the dead outside of Jerusalem. And one day he's coming again to Jerusalem and Israel. And any serious student of the Bible would have to agree that the most important city in the world, that not only in antiquity, it wasn't Rome when Jesus lived, and it's not Washington today, the most important city in the world is the city of Jerusalem. Here's a question. Why? Why does it matter so much to us? How did this tiny yet hugely significant nation arise? 
And why does it matter so much to us? So we're going to talk about that today. And uh, so welcome to week number four of Origins. And uh, we're talking about the origin of Israel. Hey, let me remind you of where we've been just uh, in the last week or so. Uh, you will remember, if you were here last week, that following the flood of uh, Noah's day, in Genesis chapter number 6, Noah and his family, uh, when they came off the ark, they all settled in one place, uh, in a place that the Bible calls Shinar. We believe this to be in the Fertile Crescent there around uh, Iraq, uh, in that area along the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. They all settled in one place, and it was their plan to build a great city and to stay together. And we learned last week that God intervened and uh, turned that plan upside down. You remember that he confounded their language, he confused their languages in order to force them to move apart from one another uh, in, an, in, uh, in fulfillment of his command of Genesis 9 and verse 1. Let me read it to you. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth or spread out and fill the earth. And so in Genesis 9, uh, God commands them to do that. In Genesis 11, you have this account of the confusion of the languages. Genesis 10, we learned last week, contains this, uh, this beautiful account of Noah and his three sons spreading out, fanning out in different directions with their new languages, filling the earth so that their families, their tribes would multiply, fill those locations all around the earth, and ultimately populate the earth with the nation's of the world. That's all recorded in Genesis chapter number 10. Last week, we, uh, we ended, as we were concluding, I pointed out to you um, this mention in Genesis chapter number 11 of the birth of Abram. Uh, let me show it to you in Genesis 11 and verse number 26. It says, And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram. Really important verse. You have the birth of a man by the name of Abram. And I noted to you last week as we were concluding that with the birth of Abram, you see this principle coming alive. God chose one nation to rescue the rest. Do you remember that? We talked about the formation of the nations, but with all of the nations, God chose one nation uh, to rescue the rest. And we see that in this birth of Abram because, as most of you know, Abram will have his name changed to, what is it? Shout it out. Abraham, right. Abram becomes Abraham. And then Abram, uh, Abraham is going to have a son whose name is, shout it, Isaac. And then Isaac is going to have two sons. One is named Esau. The other is named Jacob. And Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel. And Jacob is going to have 12 sons who are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons will be named Judah. And from the tribe of Judah will come Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So God chose Abraham to give birth ultimately to the, to the country or the nation of Israel so that Jesus Christ could come and be born. And so we're going to read about that today. Genesis chapter number 12. You should have your Bibles open there. Follow along as I read, please, in verse number 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land 
that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee. And I will make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. And curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, whose name would be changed to Sarah. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Shechem, unto the, uh, the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram saying uh, and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who had appeared unto him. And he removed from there unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. By the way, it's interesting, I think, that in verse number 8, when the Bible says Abram called on the name of the Lord from the land of Canaan, it is the very first time that any person ever knelt in the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, and called on the name of of the Lord. The Canaanites were living in that land. They were pagans. They were not calling on Jehovah. And here you have, for the very first time, uh, people bowing there and calling on the name of the Lord. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 8. By the way, did you notice how that uh, this passage reads almost like the vows in a wedding ceremony? This almost reads like wedding vows. Did you notice over and over how that God said, I will, I will, I will, eight times, in fact, four actually uh, in the text, uh, four others that are assumed in the text, God says, I will. Look at it again in verse number one, at the end of the verse, I will show you a land. Verse two, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you implied or assumed, I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. Verse three, I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curseth thee. Uh, in you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. Eight times over and over again, God pledges himself. He makes promises to Abraham. And the content of these verses, specifically verses 1 through 3, make up what we know as, I want you to write this down somewhere, the Abrahamic covenant. This makes up the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, so called because it is a covenant that God entered into with Abraham. Now, as most of you know, a covenant is simply a promise. When we talk about entering into a covenant, we are pledging ourselves uh, in a promise or pledging ourselves with a promise. And here's the good news. 
God always keeps his promises. Amen? Always. He's never made a promise to you and failed to keep it. Not a single time. In fact, the Bible says God cannot. Everybody shout the word cannot. God cannot. It's not that he will not. God cannot lie. And so when God pledges himself to something, to anything, he will keep that promise. This promise, these promises that he made to Abraham make up the Abrahamic covenant. And I would suggest that we ought to be like our father, right? We ought to keep our promises. And so can I ask you, do you? Are you a promise keeper? Do you live by, are you bound by the promises that you keep? You should be if we want to be like our father. So in the Abrahamic covenant, God promises to Abraham the birth of what would ultimately become the nation of Israel. And he promises in this covenant that he's going to do something so profound in the nation of Israel that all of the world is going to be changed forever. All the world is going to be blessed by what God is going to do. So let's talk about the promises for just a second. I'm going to get you to write these down somewhere so you'll never, ever forget them. Three promises that God makes to Abraham in this Abrahamic covenant. Number one, he says, I will make you a great nation. Drop that down somewhere. This is God's promise to Abram. Abram, I am going to make you a great nation. Now what that means is I am going to give you descendants. I'm, I'm gonna, you're going to have children. And those children are going to have children. And those grandchildren are going to have great-grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. And you're going to have many, many generations of descendants so that your descendants will make up a large nation going to make you a great nation. Number two, I'm going to give your nation a homeland. The Abrahamic covenant is not just about the people, the Israeli people, the Jewish people. It's about the place contained within the Abrahamic covenant is God's royal land grant or God's promise of the land that will belong to the Jewish people. One of the questions I asked at the beginning is why is the world so interested in what goes on in Israel? And the largest battle point in the entire Middle East process, because it affects so many other things, is the issue of land. Whose land is that little New Jersey-sized piece of property? Who gets to live there? That's really where it all boils down to. And so God said, I'm going to give you some land. I'm going to give you a lot of descendants, and then I'm going to give those descendants or your nation a homeland. And then the third promise of the Abrahamic covenant is this. I will bless the whole earth through your people in their land. Now notice that the promise of blessing is not random. It's not just about the people. It's also about the place. So he says, I'm going to bless the world through your people in their land. Now, all of these promises, as I've mentioned, all speak to the fact that Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, the father of the Jewish people. But Abraham's not only the father of the Jewish people. Um, what the Bible tells us is that Abraham is the father of faith. 
And so in that sense, he is the father of all of us who are people of faith. In fact, the Bible speaks about this uh, very plainly uh, in the book of Romans. He is the father of faith. And one of the reasons he's called the father of faith is because of his incredible example of what it looks like to live and to walk by faith. Uh, let's talk about this for just a minute. I want you to know that like Abraham, uh, we need to learn that we claim God's promises by faith. God has made some promises to us, but we claim those promises. They, they become applicable in our lives. They become our promises when we uh, exercise our faith and we claim them by faith. Now, I don't know if you've really thought about it just in my reading of the text over the last few minutes, but you should consider all of the things that Abraham is being called to, to exercise faith in in what God is saying to him. I mean, just consider this. Look at verse number one again, Genesis 12 and verse one. And the Lord said to Abram, get out of thy country, leave your kindred, go away from your father's house. Here's the command. I want you to leave everything you've ever known in your entire life. And I want you to take your wife and your immediate family, and I want you to to go away from every person that you've ever known in your entire life. Now you have to understand one, culturally, they, they lived in a culture very unlike ours where you know kids hit 18 here and oftentimes they scatter and go and, and move to other cities and they don't live near family anyway. Wasn't that way in that culture, still isn't that way in that culture today. They're very much tied to extended family. And so he said, I want you to leave your family, leave your father, leave your grandfather, leave your great, 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 great grandfather, and I want you to go now and to, to leave everyone and everything you've ever known. Well, Abraham might have said, yes, Lord, I'll do that. Where are we going? Well, verse 1 says, unto a land that I will show thee. You ever been driving the car and your kids say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Imagine Abraham's, am I there yet? Am I there yet? God said, I'm not going to tell you where you're going. Just go. And I'll let you know when you get there. I want you to follow my leading, but I will let you know when you arrive. So trust me, follow me by faith. Uh, he goes on in verse number four to note that when God called Abraham to this new life, away from his people, in a new place, to follow God to a place where he didn't even know where he was going. Look at verse four. Abram was 75 years old when this call came. So here you have an elderly gentleman who is now stepping out into this brand new experience following this God who's telling him to go trust him and go where he leads him. Now, verse number six and seven tells us that God led him into Canaan land, uh, the land of Canaan. He led him to a city called Shechem, not far from where Jerusalem is today. He led him to a city called Shechem in the plain of Morah. Uh, in verse number seven, the Lord said to Abram, unto your seed, your children, your descendants, I'm going to give this land. This is going to be their land. Well, that's all well and good until you read the last sentence in verse number six, which says, oh, and the Canaanite was in the land. This is not vacant territory. God said, I'm going to give you this land. And he looks around and he sees these warlike people, the Canaanites, who were brutal, brutal, fierce people. And God said, I'm going to give you their house. 
I'm going to give you their vineyards. I'm going to give you their gardens. I'm going to give you their wells. I'm going to give you their orchards. I'm going to get, this land is going to be your land. What's he saying to this 75-year-old man who just left all his people? You're going to have to fight for it. It's not going to come easily. And then he says, I'm going to give this, this, give this land to your descendants, your children. And there's one little bit of information that you ought to take note of. You'll find it back in chapter 11 and verse number 30. Here it is. But Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. She had no child. God says to a 75 year if y'all are with me, say amen. God says to a 75-year-old man, leave everything you know, everybody you know, go to a place I'll show you when you get there. When he gets there, surrounded by warlike people, God says, this is going to be your land. You're going to take it from them. And by the way, your kids are going to live here, don't, notwithstanding the fact that you don't have any kids. And Abraham believed God. You understand why Abraham's called the father of faith? He simply believed God. Verse number five He got this word from the Lord, and verse 5 says, So Abraham, or Abram, departed. He just did it. He simply went out by faith. Now, I think there's some lessons for us to learn in this. I want to tell you, I want to be more like Abraham. So what are the lessons that we can learn? Well, here's one, I think. It is to note that the foundation of faith, or faith's foundation, is simply the Word of God. Faith's foundation is simply the Word of God. Verse number four tells us that uh, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. What did he have to motivate his departure What did he have that would compel him to to move out other than the word of God? Here's the answer. Nothing. Zero. Zippo. Nada. He had the command of God and the command of God alone. That was it. The circumstances would have said, don't go. The culture would have said, don't go. The the, the biology would have said to a 75-year-old man and his 65-year-old wife, you're not going to have any kids at this point in your life. You, You ate too much pizza before you went to bed. You didn't hear from God, right? That was a dream. He had nothing except the word of God. Now, by the way, the word of God is enough. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17 says this, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes through the word of God. What the Bible says is that our faith is the fruit of, listen, our faith is the fruit of the word of God telling us what we otherwise do not know to be true. On April the 29th of 1981, a 16-year-old kid named Jimmy Dykes walked into a church service with zero faith. I mean, I just wasn't even interested. I was not looking for God, cared nothing about walking with God. Only one thing happened in that service. It is that a man stood who was a fine preacher, but probably not the best in the history of the world, who stood, opened a Bible, 
I don't even remember now what he preached, but he spoke from the word of God. And by the time he finished, something had been born in my heart that wasn't there when I came in. It was the faith that allowed me to believe the gospel. Faith comes from the word of God. Hebrews or Romans 10 and verse number 17. So Abraham had the word and he believed it. Hold your finger in Genesis, if you will. I want you to go all the way to the book of Romans uh, in, uh, in the New Testament. I want to show you an incredibly important passage. So go to Romans chapter number 4. And uh, I, I want you to mark some things in, in these verses. Romans chapter number 4 where Paul is making an argument. And his argument in Romans 4 is that we're saved by faith, not by work. So Paul's writing largely to Jewish people. Um, They're learning for the first time that the way that you have a relationship with God is not by keeping the law, but by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. They're perplexed by such an idea, like, like I can be right with God, my sins can be forgiven, heaven can be my home, God will be my father, not because I'm good, but because I trust. Is that what you're telling me, Paul? He says, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And then Paul uses their two most beloved personalities in the history of their nation. David, their their greatest king, and Abraham, the father of their nation. And in Romans 4, Paul uses David and Abraham to teach them how that those two men experienced grace by faith. So in speaking of Abraham, go to uh, Romans 4 and verse number 17. Uh, He says, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Speaking of Abraham. Before him whom he believed. That is, Abraham believed God. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they are. Now, everybody on both campuses, stop and look up here. If you're with me, I want you to say amen. I'm not sure you're with me. If y'all are with me, say amen. Amen. Thank you. Now now listen to what he says. That the God that we serve calls things which do not exist as though they exist. He speaks of things which are not as though they are. In other words, God can simply cause things which are not to be so. If y'all believe that, shout amen. amen. This is the whole story of the origin of the universe, right? That God spoke into nothing and created everything that is. So Abraham knew that this is who God was. here's, Here's where this is going. That my ability to trust in Christ and my ability to walk by faith after I trust in Christ extends all the way back to the beginning and my confidence that God can create the universe, that he can make everything out of nothing. So he says, this God calls things that be not as though they were. Verse 18, Abraham, who against hope, that is without any circumstantial reason to to do so, against hope, he believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Romans 4.18 is a quote from Genesis 12. Verse 19 And being not weak in faith, Abraham considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here's what the Bible says. When God gave him the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 
he was 75 years old. God said, you're going to have a son. But then just to add good measure to the miracle working power of this conception, now that Sarah's going to have a baby, God didn't let her conceive the next week. God waited 25 years until Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 and then she conceives a child. And yet, the Bible says in Romans 4 that Abraham did not even take into consideration the, the deadness of his own body or the deadness of her womb in terms of biologically being able to father, uh, uh, being able to parent a child, that neither one of them biologically should have been productive any longer. And yet, he said, God promised it. And I believe him. Verse number 20, he staggered not. Do you stagger at the promises of God? The word means you waver. When God makes a promise, do you go, ooh, I'm not sure. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded. Everybody say it out loud, fully persuaded. Being fully persuaded that he that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. God is able. Amen? God is able. And therefore, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now, here's the point. The, the point is Abraham had great faith. And that faith was so strong that he ignored all of the circumstances that would have made the promises ridiculous on, on their face. He ignored all of those circumstances. He didn't stagger at the promise of God. He knew that God was able to keep his word. And so he simply believed. The point is, faith's foundation is the word of God. So here's a principle. If you want to increase your faith, have you ever said that? Lord, increase my faith. If you want to increase your faith, then increase your intake of the Word of God. It's that simple. Well, maybe it's not that simple. Increase the intake, your intake of the Word of God and your surrender to and submission to the Word of God. Not just reading it in your head, but surrendering your life to it. If you want to grow in your faith, increase your intake in the word or of the Word of God. So here's an exercise to sort of flesh that out a little bit. And I want you to, I really would hope that you will do this. Who is the person that you no, you've watched them over the course of your life. That person has demonstrated more faith than any other person you know. They just believe God and they walk in obedience to God. Who is that person? And most all of us could probably think of a name or maybe a number of names. Whoever that person is, somewhere in your notes right now, jot down their name. Just, just think, think of who they are, write it down, and here's my, here's my challenge for you. Sometime when you have an opportunity, ask that person to see their Bible. Can I see your Bible? And I will almost guarantee you, unless it's a new Bible, it will be worn and tattered and marked up and dog-eared and underlined and circled and highlighted because the faith that you've watched them demonstrate did not come from themselves. It came from the Word of God. The Bible teaches us that our faith is founded on the Word of God. Secondly, not only is faith founded on the Word of God, but secondly, faith is obedient. 
Faith is obedient. Uh, I'm back in Genesis chapter number 12. God gives the command, verses 1, 2, and 3. Leave your family, leave your people, leave your place. Go where I'll show you. And uh, I'm going to bless you and make you great. So verse 4 records uh, Abraham's beginning of obedience. So Abram departed. He, he begins to obey. But does he follow through in his obedience? He does. And verses 5 and 6 tell us how that he follows through in his obedience. He took Sarai and Lot, his brother, all they had, all the souls they had gained in Haran. And they went forth, following the command of God, the leadership of the Lord, They went to the land of Canaan. Into the land of Canaan they came. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land of Canaan unto the place of Shechem. He came from the north, up where Syria and Lebanon are now, above Israel. He came down into the land of Israel, all the way down to Shechem. Down south of the Sea of Galilee, kind of the middle of the country. And then he continued, the Bible says, even further south in verses 6 and 7. Here's the point. Faith is obedient. Faith obeys what God says. Now it occurs to me, I don't think in all this talk of faith that I have given you a definition of what faith actually is just yet. I think you know it. The word in the Bible means our um, assurance of, our confidence uh, in the truth or the veracity of who God is and what God says. That's what faith is. Faith means I believe Uh, God, not just in God, but I believe God. I believe what he says. I believe he will do what he says he will do and that he's able to accomplish what he says he can accomplish. So here's what I would want you to know, that all obedience, all of our acts of obedience are expressions of our confidence in the person and the character of God. Do you agree with that? That when I obey God, I do so because I believe who God is. And I believe that God will keep his word to me and that he will do what he says that he will do. Abraham believed. He believed that God would guide him. Go where I show you. Okay, you'll show me. Um, He believed that God would provide for him. Leave your family. Leave everything that's safe. Okay, God, you'll take care of me as I go. He believed that God would protect him. He's going into hostile territory. So he believed that God would God provide and protect, and therefore he obeyed. His obedience was the result of his faith. Now, if it's true that our faith is evidence of, or our obedience is evidence of our faith, then doesn't it stand to reason that our disobedience, listen, that our disobedience is an expression of our lack of faith. Doesn't that make sense? Now I'm talking about persistent disobedience, lifestyle disobedience. I'm not talking about in the moment, in temptation, in, in, a, in, a, in a sinful mistake or whatever. But I'm saying where there are, where there's a, a, a habit, a lifestyle, a practice of disobeying God, is it not that we don't trust God? We're living in such a way in disobedience because we don't trust what God says. I think that makes sense. So let me apply that. In what area are you living in disobedience? Where is there persistent disobedience in your life? Let me suggest three possibles. So one would be, some of you have yet to come to faith in Jesus. You know of Jesus, you've heard of Jesus, you've heard the claims of the gospel, but you haven't yet 
Come to the place where you're willing to give your life to him, to surrender who you are, turn from your sin, and trust in Christ. Why not? I would suggest that you have not done that because you do not believe yet. You have not yet come to the place where you trust what the Bible says about Christ is true and that you are willing to put your confidence in him so you, you're, you're, uh, you doubt his person, you doubt his promise, and so you have not yet trusted in him. That's, that's true for some in this room, I'm sure. What about our moral choices? Now, I want you to listen to me carefully. There are some in this room who are unmarried, and yet you are practicing, you're engaging in premarital sexual relationships. You have a very active sexual lifestyle, yet you are not married. It is your lifestyle. There are some of you who are married, and you are engaged in extramarital affairs. It's entirely possible that there are some who are engaged in homosexual activity. And it's, I'm certain that it's true that there are some of you who are unmarried and yet living together as husband and wife. Now, all of these are plain lifestyles of disobedience to God's word. It's not a one-time decision. It's not, man, I messed up in that moment. It is a persistent lifestyle that you have chosen. So here's what I would ask you. Why have you chosen it? Particularly if you're a believer. Why have you chosen that? I would only suggest that it's because you don't believe that God's way is better. And, And God says, I have a better way. One man, one woman monogamy, that we are going to honor God and keep our sexual activity within the bounds of, a, of holy matrimony to the glory of God. That is God's way. You don't believe it. So you think your way is better. The way that you're living is an expression, not so much of rebellion, though it's that, but it is an expression of your lack of confidence in what God says is so. Let me suggest one other one, stewardship. Being the person who says, I'm going to tithe my income. God commands me to do it. I'm going to live with generosity. That generosity is going to begin with the tithe. Everything that I get, I will receive and then invest regularly, strategically, consistently back into the work of God. Some of you, many of you have decided you're not going to do that. The evidence of your life is, I'm not going to do that. Why not? I would suggest there's, a, there's one reason. Your lack of obedience in that regard is a demonstration of your lack of faith that God will take care of you. So you believe that if you tithe and if you give, you won't have enough money. And yet God says, if you'll honor me in this, I'll open the windows of heaven and take care of everything you need. But you don't believe it. And because you don't believe it, you don't obey. So here's my point, that if the lesson from Abraham's life is faith obeys. God said it, I can trust him, so I'll just do what he said. If that principle is true, then the negative principle must be true as well, that my lack of obedience demonstrates a lack of faith. All right, so the principle is faith is founded on God's word. Faith is obedient. 
Now, let me give you the next thing because some of you would really love it if I would move on off that. So let's just move on and talk about what is really, really important in Abraham's example. Secondly, it is that like Abraham, our faith will lead to intimacy. Like Abraham, our faith will lead to our intimacy with God. Now, based on everything that I've just said, this stands to reason, doesn't it? I mean, this makes perfect sense. Like, if, like Abraham, we believe God's word and we trust his character and and we're confident of his power, and as a result of our trust and our confidence, we obey what he says, doesn't it follow that we will enjoy his presence and his joy and his fellowship? Right? Because we're, we're trusting him, we're walking with him, we're obeying him. There's a, there's a nearness and a fellowship that we enjoy with him. This is what the Bible says about Abraham. Listen to James 2 and verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Isn't that interesting? Does it say that Abraham was called the friend of God because he left Haran and went to Canaan. Doesn't say he was the friend of God because he built an altar at Bethel. Doesn't say he was a friend of God. It says he was a friend of God for one reason. He believed God. He trusted him. Faith brings intimacy. It does. And the opposite stands to reason as well. On the other hand, if we doubt God, we discount his word. We disbelieve his promises. We, we doubt his ways are better. We doubt his, his faithfulness to us. And as a result of that, we pull back and we disobey and, and we live according to what we think makes sense rather than what God says. And we can surely expect that our relationship with God is going to feel much more parental, maybe much more judgmental because there is much correction in our relationship. Because we're walking in disobedience. Like Abraham, faith is based on the word of God. And if we will trust his word and obey, that will lead us to intimacy. The final thing I want you to know today is that like Abraham, our faith will be tested. Our faith will be tested. One of the things that we learn from Abraham is that faith, having having a faith life is not a one and done deal. It's not not like you check that box and and then you never falter in that faith, right? I mean, we, we all know we kind of live in an ebb and flow and we take a step forward, maybe a step back and, and there, it's a journey, right? And Abraham was a man just like we are. He had, he had great faith and yet there were pockets of, of doubt along the way. Genesis 12 tells us about some of his doubt. I mean, he had such great faith to leave his family and his, and his friends and his, and his uh, country and to follow God into this new land, look what happens. He makes his way through, I mean, such confidence all the way through the land of Canaan. And then he gets to Egypt. I'm in uh, Genesis 12 and uh, verse number 10. And there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. Verse 11, it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarah, his wife, Behold now, uh, I know that you are a beautiful woman to look on. You, you know this story, right? He says, hey, babe. You are so good looking. And that's good for me, but that's bad for me. (laughs) Because when we get down into Egypt, Pharaoh, he's going to want you to be in his harem, be be one of his wives. And so if he knows I'm your husband, he'll kill me so he can have you. So here's what I'd prefer that you do. Would you just tell him you're my sister? Don't you want to shake Abraham and go, who is the guy that just left Haran and walked all the way through the land of Canaan? But his faith had a momentary 
um, lapse, a momentary struggle. Um, this is true for all of us. Can I get a witness? Is this true for you, right? You, you didn't check a box one day, did you, and you never struggled again? No. So here's what God will do. God will stretch our faith in order to make it stronger. He will test our faith in order to make it more pure. I, I won't take the time. Turn with me to Genesis 22. I won't take the time to, to work through the whole story because we're out of town. Uh, out of, we're not out of town. We're out of time. <laughs> if you're out of town watching online, we're out of time. But um, in Genesis 22, you know the story. Isaac now has been born. God has kept his word. At 100 years old, Abraham fathered a son. Isaac is born, and uh, when he's probably 15, 18 years old, maybe 20 even, um, Genesis 22, God says, Abraham, yes, Lord, anything. I trust you. You're, you're awesome. And I want you to take Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to go into the land of Moriah. I'll show you. Remember when I showed you where to come to Canaan? I remember. I want you, I'm going to show you where to go again. When you get there, I want you to kill him. That was a command. Genesis 22, offer him for a burnt offering. Essentially, it means cut his throat, drain his blood, fillet him, and burn him on an altar. That's what a burnt offering is. I want you to do that with your son. In the very next verse, just as in Genesis 12, Abraham gets up in the morning and he just begins to follow God. Now, Hebrews tells us that he so believed in the promise of God that he knew that if he killed Isaac in obedience to God, that God would raise him from the dead. But God took him there. He bounds, binds Isaac, puts him on the altar, and begins to slay him. And God says, stop. And Genesis 22 says that God was testing Abraham, stretching that faith. He was testing him so that his faith would be stronger. Not so that God would know Abraham's heart, because God knew his heart already, but so that Abraham's faith would grow even stronger still. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1 and verse number 7 that God does this for us. That our faith is tested. Our faith is strained sometimes. So that our faith, which is more precious than gold, will become more purified to the glory of God. Now I promised you at the beginning that I would tell you why the nation of Israel is so important. This nation founded on the faith of Abraham is so important. Here's why. Because had there been no Abraham... There would have been no Isaac, and were there no Isaac, there would have been no Jacob, and no Jacob, there would have been no Israel, and no Israel, there would have been no Jesus. And no Jesus, there would have been no redemption. I care about Israel and the Jewish people because my faith was born out of the Holy Land and from the Jewish people. And I'm going to heaven because of the Jewish carpenter's son, the Son of God, Jesus, my Savior. But Jesus didn't just come and die so that we could be saved. Jesus went away and promised to come again. Amen? And he promised that he was coming back to Israel. And when he comes, he will come to Jerusalem. And this is why all the world, unbeknownst to many of them, but Jesus, or the prophet said that in the last days, Israel would become, Jerusalem would become this cup of trembling and that all the world would lean in toward Jerusalem watching that. They don't even know it yet, but all the world is looking for the Messiah to come. Jesus the Savior to come. And it all was born, it all originated in the faith of a man named Abraham. Let's pray together.